Well, we're now in the midst of a six-week series on future family, looking at the new challenges that families are facing, families of all shapes and sizes. Last Sunday, we focused on the reality that uh, in our world today, uh, jobs seem to be stealing our downtime, which makes family time even harder. Technology is influencing our children like never before, and school and sports activities seem to take our children away from us, making it hard to find time for that spiritual formation of our children. So our goal in this series is to find some inspiration, some practical tools that can help us find that preferred future we have for our families, to help parents and grandparents to find that enduring faith for our children and our grandchildren. And the subject we're talking about today is spiritual leadership in the home. And this subject is is like others that I've shared before, of offering the importance of looking at this scripture that was just read in light of its historical context. It's so important to read between the lines sometimes and capture the spirit of the scriptures and not just have a surface reading of what comes across in the words themselves. You've heard me pound on this before as we talked about the Bible and divorce and, and the Bible and slavery and women speaking in the pulpit. And it certainly applies here. You've heard me talk about prescriptive truth and descriptive truth. That sometimes the scriptures share prescriptive truth that has something to say to all generations, all situations, all times. Its truth is universal. And other times, especially in the letters that you find in the scriptures, sometimes they're sharing a truth that was certainly applicable to that day and time, to that situation and that circumstance. And the challenge is sometimes understanding the difference and deciding when that applies. Now, I remember um, when I think about this passage before I had lots of training in college and in seminary, and, and I remember even then being somewhat uncomfortable with this Ephesians chapter 5. And, and so I kind of worked out my own solution to it, and, and I remember teaching this on several occasions, and I came with what I, what I called the 5149 principle. Now, now, keep in mind, I've always been married to strong women. And I learned pretty quickly, it's very wise that in any decision, you should consult with your wife first before you make one, especially the biggies. And, but when it came to this passage, I thought, well, the Bible seems to suggest at some point somebody's got to take charge. And so I came up with this principle of 5149. And what that means is that most of the time, In all circumstances, you discuss those things, but if you ever are at an impasse, then somebody's got to have that 51%, right? Well, (laughs) yeah, no, no comments from the peanut gallery. Well, I imagine my first wife, maybe out of respect, she never complained about that. She always kept her mouth shut out of respect whenever I would share that teaching. But I have to believe now that she just might have been smirking inside and letting me believe that. And let me tell you, in my ministry, in my all my years of ministry, I've known many men who thought they were the head of the household and everybody else knew who was really, really running the show. So you're not going to hear me talking about 51-49% anymore. I don't think it's practical. I'm not sure it's healthy for most marriages today. And I don't believe it's really biblical when you take the whole of Scripture, when you consider the historical context. 
But let me say this. If marriage works for you, if the man is the head of the household, then by all means continue to do what works for you. As the, we shared last Sunday, God uses all kinds of families, and there's more than one way of doing families. So do what works best for you. But I want to take a closer look at this <clears throat> passage from Ephesians. Gordon Fee, who's a professor of New Testament at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, has done a great job <clears throat> sharing some analysis, <clears throat> analyzing this passage. <laughs> you ever have those days? <clears throat> and what's important to know is I don't think you can understand this passage unless you understand what times were like for men and women, especially <clears throat> in the household together in biblical times. Uh, I got a diagram I want to show you <clears throat> that comes from archaeology. We find some cities that were located at one time <clears throat> right on the Mediterranean Sea, and then because of silt and so forth, uh, <clears throat> land took over, and so the cities ended up getting moved. And so we have these archaeological sites of foundations are still very much present that show us what the average home looked like. On the left, you'll find that's a dwelling that's a multiple-family dwelling. <clears throat> and then one on the right is one that describes best the kind of family that is mentioned by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. And what's important in looking at this is to realize that the home back then was not just a place of refuge. It wasn't just a place of consumption. It was a place of production because you'll find a spot in there where, where most families were producing something to sell. There's a spot for the public to come into. And you'll also find another room where whatever they were making is produced. And it's important to understand that because it helps set the tone to realize that, that marriage back then was not about love as we understand it in our day to day. <clears throat> but it was a, an economic institution. It was a way that people survived in those times. It was a place of production. And in that, that home, by Roman rule, the man had absolute authority. Now, they didn't always exercise it, but none of the others, whether it's slaves, the wife, concubines, even children, had no redresses, no way to redress any, any grievances. And so also the householder and just a few of the higher-level slaves were the only ones who actually had public roles that would go out and participate in society. The ideal was the woman's place was found in the home. And Philo of Alexandria has a quote that shares that very well. He says, Marketplaces and council halls and law courts and gatherings and meetings where a large number of people are assembled in open air with full scope for discussion and action. All these are suitable to men both in war and peace. The women are best suited to the indoor life, which never strays from the house. We also know from census list in Egypt that the average age of a man <clears throat> when they married was age 30. And for women, that age was less than 18. That means that the woman entered a household as a teenager and then was taught the ways of that household to be educated and how it operates. And the younger the wife was, the better, because the primary job for the wife was to bear children. And the more childbearing years, the younger and the healthier the children would typically be. So marriage was not for love. It was about bearing legitimate children 
keeping the family line going, and the failure to do so could be grounds for divorce. And most men, although not all, were promiscuous. Demosthenes shares this quote, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. So the idea that men and women could be equal partners was just totally foreign to people in that day. It simply did not exist. Even at meals, the wife, if she attended that meal, would sit on a bench while the others reclined, including the courtesans, and when the meal was done, she would leave while they continued to talk. So I hope that you can see the problems in trying to use this passage to tell modern husbands that they should assume the role as the head of the household because modern society looks nothing like Greco-Roman society did in those days. And so what happens is some just simply choose to ignore this passage and pretend it's not there. Others will sometimes point to it and say, see how irrelevant the Bible is? But I hope if we take a closer look, you'll see that in actuality, that this shows a radical step forward in what the writer is trying to say to both men and women in this passage. I also want you to understand to realize what the challenge it was for this writer calling people to become followers of Jesus Christ who already have a certain level of shame to deal with because he's asking them to follow someone who died, was crucified on a cross. Keep in mind, that was the worst thing you could do to a human being in Roman society. It was reserved for the worst of criminals, and he's calling them first to become a follower of this kind of person, and then to go and change the structures of society, which simply add to that shame in that day. So if we put this passage in the context, its wider context, you find that the discussion actually continues into the sixth chapter the first nine verses. <clears throat> and if we look at that section as a whole, you discover it talks about three kinds of relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And notice on the right side that the second person mentioned all those would actually be the same person, the man. And the first person in each of those is the vulnerable, the powerless person. And here's what's interesting when you pull back and analyze this passage very carefully you realize that the writer has four times as many words for the head of the household, the man, as he has for the wife. Four times as many. His primary concern is about the husband and what he needs to do. Also notice that the writer says to wives to submit to their husbands and slaves to obey their masters, but he transforms the relationship and says that you're really not serving them you are serving Jesus Christ. You do it out of the love of Christ. He changes the focus of that relationship. And notice that he does not say to the male, he does not tell them to take his proper role as a, that authority. He simply assumes that to be the case. He knows if he does, it could lead to easy abuse. Instead, he spends his time in talking to the man to model the character of Christ. He says to love your wife, not to treat her as an object, to 
produce children, but to love them. He says to treat their slaves with respect and realize that you are both, in essence, working for the same master in heaven. So the writer is not trying to establish the hierarchy. He simply assumes it and tries to reinterpret it in the roles in light of the servanthood of Christ. And what does that look like? The best example I can give to you of what that means to lead like Christ is to do what he did in the upper room. Remember what happened when they gathered there with the disciples? They had a long day in which their feet are dirty, and they come into this place to serve this last supper, and there is no servant there. There's no child. So the disciples are looking among one another as who's going to be the one who gets down and does that dirty work? And who does? Jesus gets down on his knees, and he's the one that washes their feet. That's what leadership looks like, and that's the model this writer is calling the male to do within the household. And just imagine already how crazy it is that the first century church, the average church, gathered in a home, and they shared a common meal with male and female and slave and free eating together. That was unheard of. They were already pushing the limits of Roman society. And to do so anymore by saying somehow men or women are equal would have just made no sense to the average person in that day. So I know for us, while Ephesians chapter 5 sounds just terribly, horribly outdated, for their time it was incredibly, radically countercultural. They were living as much as possible into the confines of their culture. Paul's words that are found in Galatians, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And then our other passage gives us a, a beautiful illustration of how prominent women were in practicality and actuality in the early church, you find many women named for their leadership within the church. And then we have this interesting situation where there's Prisca and Aquila. In other places, they use her full name as Priscilla and Aquila. And notice that the female is mentioned first and the male second. And that simply was very, very rare in most Roman literature. The male is always named first whenever a couple is shared. And why would that be the case? Six times this couple is mentioned together in the scriptures, and four out of the six times the female is mentioned first. A couple times Aquila gets the leadership of that, but four times Priscilla is mentioned worse. People speculate about why that might be, but I, I think I know why that might be. I had a couple in my first charge at Mason New Ross, Marcella and Denver Feltner were pillars of the church in New Ross and pillars in the community as well. Now, Denver was very well respected. He was the local elementary school principal. He had been that principal there for 20 years. He was loved. He was respected. He had authority. But let me tell you, Marcella was the one that got things done around that community. She was on just about every uh, community committee that there was. She was on every one of our church committees. And you always knew that if you wanted to get something done, just, just call Marcella up and it'll get done. She was the outgoing, powerful person in that relationship. 
And so whenever people referred to them, they always said, Marcella in Denver. It just came out naturally like that. No one ever disrespected Denver at all. It's just the way their personalities worked. My guess is that's what was going on with Priscilla and Aquila. And it shows how much the early church radically utilized the leadership of women. Now, for me, the bigger question today is not who is the head of the household. The real question I want to ask today is who, if anyone, is providing spiritual direction in your home? My fear is that in most families, no one is at the helm, that we're going through life, coasted along, being spiritually rudderless, letting society and the world push us from one way to the other. I know some families have punted that responsibility to the church. You bring your children to church to let the church do it. That's what my parents did. We never talked about Jesus in my family. We prayed a prayer before each meal, but we never opened a Bible together. We never talked about things that was said at church. We let the church do that. And if that's the case, then you better give us enough time to actually do it, okay? I know Amber Good would love to convene a team of parents and, and discuss what they want their children to know in the Bible. What do they want to know about Jesus? What are the values that they think they'll need in life? And figure out how we together can instill that in our children, both in the church and at home. That's what Orange Express is all about, the merging of the church and home to make sure our children get what they need to receive. And grandparents, you have a role that you can play too in this life that's so busy for your children. You know, there's a network called the Christian Grandparenting Network that's got the mission of understanding that, that so many are not showing that leadership, and so maybe we have a role to play in doing that. You can actually take your child to a Christian grand camp as well. So check that out. So let me finish by offering a better model, I think, for spiritual leadership in the home. And it's a simple one. All you've got to do is go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or Romans chapter 12, and you find Paul, in speaking about the organization of the church, discusses giftedness. And he shares how it's like the body of Christ, that some of us have the gift of teaching, others the gift of service, some the gift of encouragement, some are apostles, some have the gift of tongues. And his point is that no gift is greater than another. And so if that's good enough for the church, couldn't it be good enough for your home? So I encourage you to sit down and talk about what you bring to the table when it comes to the spirituality in the family. Even talk to your children. Sometimes they've got gifts to offer as well. And figure out how we can make sure that, that God, that, that Jesus Christ becomes more the center of our homes so we can live into that in all that we do. And if you come to those points where you have disagreements, can't you find a way to compromise? Or can you decide to balance out who gets their way from one time to the next? Is it really that hard? I don't think so. I think that's the best way to go about making sure that each person is loved and respected and offers their best to the unity of that family. I think that's the spirit of what's found in Ephesians 5 when you read between the lines, when you take it beyond the surface, I think it's probably what the writer had in mind when he said to the church in general, submit 
to each other out of respect for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we want to lift up every family today. We know life is crazy and it's busy. And sometimes it's hard to talk about those intimate and difficult things. Give us the courage to sit down and, and talk about what each of us have to offer so that we can live into our faith in everything that we do, but especially in the home when we come together. May the home be a place of renewal and encouragement and support as we go out and face the tough things in our lives. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord.